Thanks for joining, and you're listening to The Startup Scaler Show. In this podcast, you'll be hearing from founders and CEOs, investors, and others who have helped to scale or grow startup businesses. Today, we're joined by Mark Thomas, serial entrepreneur and founder and CEO of Zen Sports, an international peer-to-peer sports betting marketplace focused on both traditional and esports. Today, we discuss different aspects of building a startup, from ideation and team building to scaling and acquisition. This episode is recorded virtually, so please excuse slight disruption. Thanks and enjoy. Cool. So, yeah, uh, thanks again for joining. I think it's an interesting time to chat. Um, How has everything been, I mean, since we last spoke? Oh, man, it's been uh, pretty busy. I think we chatted maybe it was last six months ago and yeah, from, for, for us, I mean, we, we've been through a lot, um, as a sports betting company or a company within the sports and entertainment space. Um, so we've, we closed some uh, funding both at the end of, uh, uh, 2019 and in early 2020, uh, in a couple of different tranches. And so, uh, you know, we were really scaling and growing there, uh, doing, doing very well. And then of course COVID hit, um, in March which all of these sports leagues decided to postpone their uh, matches, understandably. And uh, so there was for a while, uh, for about a month, we didn't have any sports betting going on uh, at all within our uh, product. And uh, so what we did is we, we said, look, you know, you know, traditional sports is great, um, but we want to make sure that we're serving all markets at this point in time, you know, even those that are maybe not traditional sports um, just due to the situation with people being uh, quarantined at home. So we actually added esports betting last month, um, mm-hmm. and then uh, so which is court, which of course is is doable from anywhere uh, that you are. Uh, so it doesn't require being physically present or anything. Uh, so we added League of Legends and Counter Strike Go betting um, last month, and then we added MMA betting a few weeks ago as well, which is one of the first uh, in-person physical sports to come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they came back uh, a couple weeks ago. They've had a few fights since then, uh, UFC specifically. Right. And, uh, yeah, and then last weekend, that. yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then last weekend, Bundesliga came back uh, for mm-hmm. soccer. So now that's going again too. So um, and and uh, the English Premier League looks, looks like it's coming back in the next uh, ten to fourteen days. Uh, golf mm-hmm. is coming back in the next few weeks to a month, and then it looks very likely that the NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball will be coming back in early. Uh, July. So, uh, mm-hmm. so I think, you know, while there was a little bit of a blip there, um, you know, uh, everything looks like it's now back on the up and up and, you know, we're poised and ready to, uh, to resume our growth, uh, at least within the sports and sports betting sector. Yeah, no, that's great to hear. And, you know, for those listening, Zen Sports, it's a mobile peer-to-peer sports betting marketplace. Um, we had the chance to meet earlier when you were fundraising. I remember seeing on LinkedIn as well. I think you had that kind of inspirational shirt where you said coffees for closers, you're drinking a coffee <laughs> as you had closed your fundraising round. So that was really good to see. Uh, but yeah. maybe I think for the audience as well, could you perhaps give like a, a little brief explanation of what you're working on with Zen Sports? Yeah, absolutely. So Zen uh, Sports is a peer-to-peer uh, mobile sports betting app where anybody can create and accept sports bets uh, with anyone else in the world without the need for a bookmaker. So we are essentially eliminating the bookmaker, which is one of the longest standing middlemen in the world. <laughs> uh, why they've been around for as long as they have is uh, a bit surprising. 
they charge huge fees. They don't really provide a lot of value add. And um, at the same time, it's a huge industry, right? So there's $120 billion uh, generated every year in sports betting revenue uh, worldwide, which is super exciting. At the same time, there's tons and tons of pain um, that come with traditional sports betting because of the way that it is operating now with traditional bookmakers, both offline and online. Um, and there's another issue too, which, which is regards to um, payments in traditional financial institutions. They oftentimes don't like funding uh, betting or gaming or gambling type products. So if you use your debit card or your credit card to try and fund a sports betting account, oftentimes your bank will decline the transaction altogether or they will um, you know, impose huge fees or make you wait a long time. And so we implement cryptocurrencies and uh, specifically our own sports cryptocurrency token uh, called sports that people can use for wagering and earning rewards. And it's gone really, really well since we launched that token last summer. Um, mm -hmm. While we give people the ability to bet with dollars in our app, um, almost 100% of the bets in our app take place using our token. So we feel like we're really proving out a first best real world use case for cryptocurrencies and blockchain, uh, which I think is super exciting. Right. Definitely. Um, you know, it's a space that I've had a chance to look into as well, like on the venture side, looking into some fintech companies, blockchain companies. Um, and I think this is one of those really interesting use cases that I've seen out of the ones I've looked at. So it's interesting to see kind of how you're going to be able to, you know, continue to use that cryptocurrency as well to facilitate that peer to peer um, activity. Yeah. And but I think, it, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead I was just going to say, I mean, um, you know, one thing I've been curious about after speaking to many different entrepreneurs is just hearing about people's different journeys to how they decide they're going to become a founder perhaps. And I know you had a previous company as well that you worked um, or that you founded in the real estate space, but I was curious, what's essentially been your journey to becoming a founder, becoming an entrepreneur? Yeah. So um, I started my very first company back in 2005, um, about five years out of school. Uh, shows you um, I worked in corporate finance for about five years and then decided to start my own um, business, which was um, a recruiting agency. Did that for about three and a half years, um, went very well, was very successful. Uh, I sold that in 2008 and I just always been fascinated by new technology and really loved how you could build a new tech product and have not just, you know, uh, a few people use it, but the whole world. Because with traditional brick and mortar or services businesses, they're tough to scale, right? There's only so many people that, um, you know, you as a person or even a team of people don't scale, whereas technology does. And so I was really enamored and fascinated with building great tech um, and the idea of building great tech that would serve uh, and help the masses. So um, founded a couple of tech startups within the recruiting space. Um, neither of them really went anywhere because I was still on my 10,000 hour journey of learning uh, how, to, how to build technology products. Um, and then I went to Intuit, worked there for about a year and a half, and then started my last company that you just mentioned, which was a real estate transaction software management product that we sold to residential real estate brokers and agents uh, for basically like a back office and compliance and um, workflow management solution and uh, raised uh, some venture capital for that. And um, after less than three years of, of, uh, from founding the company, we, uh, we got acquired by Realtor.com, which is the okay. second largest home search portal uh, in the United mm -hmm. States and uh, owned by News Corp, uh, which owns Wall Street Journal, Financial Times and, and other media properties. So, you know, really each startup has done better than the last. 
And I think that's the most important thing is, is put in the number of hours and learn what you can as quickly as you can so that you, again, get to that expert level to the point where you put in your 10,000 plus hours and you're, and you're really understanding how it needs to be done. And you get to that point where you just, you, it just comes second nature to you of, hey, how do you form a thesis around building a product? How do you, um, you know, build an initial MVP or MSP, minimum sellable product? How do you get those first initial customers? How do you fundraise? How do you sell your product? Um, how do you build a team? Um, and then of course, ultimately, how do you have an exit? And so um, now that I have those tools in my toolbox, you know, I, I mean, I, I, it, it just, you couple the, the love and passion for building tech with the ability to, um, you know, hopefully do it successfully. And that's just, you know, that's when magic happens. And so, um, you know, for those, of course, aspiring entrepreneurs, the most important thing is just to get out there and do it. Um, get out there and do it, put in as many hours as you can, um, and, uh, and, and build that um, toolbox up over time that gives you that expertise so that, you know, um, you know eventually uh, it usually comes to fruition in a pretty nice way where you build something very successful. Mm -hmm. Right. There's definitely lots to unpack in what you just mentioned. Um, you know, really interesting things that you've already had the chance to go through with your previous startup from fundraising to being part of an acquisition, building out your team. Um, I think, you know, starting from the basics, like what's the process like when you just come up with your idea? I mean, does this come from inspiration, like in different ways, maybe perhaps, you know, whatever inspired you to start like Zen sports, for example, where do you think that ideation phase comes from? Good question. Uh, and it actually is probably one of the most important pieces because everything then flows from that, right? If you choose a bad idea or a bad market or something you're not passionate about or something that you can't recruit other people to be passionate about, you're kind of dead in water on arrival. Um, so I think it's a couple of things. One is it doesn't necessarily have to be a pain point that you personally experience. I know a lot of people say solve for a pain that you're personally going through. I don't think it has to be that, although it certainly helps. Um, I think the most important thing is that it's a big enough market and enough people are feeling that pain, not just mm -hmm. you. And so I think, you know, even though my last company had an exit, um, it, it was still a small market we were going after with regards to not real estate, real estate's huge, but with regards to the specific software audience that would be interested in our software for a back office compliance management tool, just wasn't that big of a market, both from kind of a, number of people that would use it and the, the amount of money they would pay for it. So while the product was great and it certainly served a useful case for several people, it wasn't truly big. And, and that was actually, I think the biggest learning lesson, even though we had an exit, um, the biggest learning lesson for me from that was um, you got to go after a big market. You have to go after a big market, whether that's large revenue or large amounts of people. If you don't do that, you're basically just kind of spinning your wheels and building a lifestyle business. And, Building a technology product and building a technology company is hard, no matter whether you go after a small market or a big market, you might as well go after a big market. So, um, so I actually say start with that first. Um, and then, you know, you know, so find a market that's big and that you're passionate about, and then find what pain points within that market exist. So for example, with Zen Sports, we originally started Zen Sports as a meetup recreational sports app, helping connect people to meet up to play sports for money. So we had a thesis around the fact that, um, hey, uh, people, it was painful to find others to play tennis with. It was painful to find bowling leagues to go uh, join. And it was painful to find a pickup game of basketball. 
-hmm. And we found there was real pain in that, but we found uh, after about a year that people weren't really willing to pay for it. And it was too, it was too fragmented. And so the thesis of sports and finding a pain point within that industry was still clear, but the new, the, the nuance or niche in which we're doing it was, was a piece we still had to figure out. And so we then took the same concept of peer to peer um, that we applied to meetup sports and applied that to sports betting, which is a much bigger market and one that has a lot more revenue tied to it, has a lot more pain attached to it, and then took that concept and applied it to sports betting. And, and so I, I think really going after that big market and a thesis around which industries have those pain points, and then of course iterating as you go along to make sure that you're always, always going after that big market um, is I think by far away the most important thing you can do. Right. And it's, it's clear that even with Zen Sports, you essentially pivoted a bit from going after those sports meetups uh, towards the sports betting marketplace. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, perhaps they maybe have an idea, but they're not sure if it's the right idea yet. But what you suggested also is just getting started, getting that experience, working on it, and then potentially throughout that research, finding the right market, pivoting there. And I guess, you know, the first part of really scaling is even having that right market to uh, attack to begin with. Because, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, go after a big market and then be nimble enough to move within that market as needed. Like, for example, like with the uh, real estate software startup, my last company, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think instead of going after real estate transaction management, you know, if we had maybe instead become like an online brokerage where we could tap into those big fees, that would have been the killer uh, idea because this was 2012 um, for, for the last company where we were starting out. And um, we went after the small market, whereas if we had taken the same concept of using software to automate the transaction and gone after the big market, which is the brokerage fees, that would have been, I think, a bigger business. So yeah, it, it, you nailed it right in the head. Go after the big market first and then be nimble enough to move within that based on what you observe with customers and, and product. Mm-hmm. Got it. And then... I'm curious, when in the process do you find that it's perhaps important to raise funding rather than, you know, looking to bootstrap and kind of be self-sufficient? I mean, ultimately, the goal of funding is, is to help companies scale faster. So when do you think you see that line that, like, you need to raise funding um, and maybe discuss a bit about that process? Well, that is... Uh... I think it's very individual and company specific mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons. Uh, I'll touch on a couple of them. So for example, because I had a successful exit with my last company, I was able to raise a friends and family round of a couple hundred thousand dollars, um, even pre-product for Zen Sports, even before we had built the Rec Sports product. So I had that luxury because I had made my past investors some money, so they were um, willing to back me even without a product yet. Um, so not everyone has that luxury, which is totally understandable. Um, and so, you know, what you have to do is you have to, yeah, you, you have to get some traction. Um, and even with, even with Zen sports after a while, like, you know, I mean, you have to prove some traction, right? You can't just, you know, go on what you did before. So I generally recommend if it's like your first time at the rodeo or, um, or if you don't have a, an exit under your belt, the best method for gaining funding is some kind of proof of concept and some traction, not just building, definitely not building a prototype. That's not sufficient but not even building a full-blown product um, because nobody may want to use it, right? And going back to the whole market size and everything we just talked about. So I I really stress upon people, just go out and get that first even five to $10,000 a month in revenue. 
just just mm -hmm. something. Or even I would even say you could probably even raise uh, two hundred fifty to five hundred thousand on just even a thousand dollars a month in revenue, um, or X Y Z number of users if you're in a, a if you're in a consumer non uh, revenue generating business type of uh, business model. Um, because right. that then shows to investors that you're just not completely full of it, right? Mm -hmm. That actually there will be people who will pull out their wallet and give you money for what you've done. That is not easy, no matter what you're building. I don't care what it is. So even a thousand dollars in revenue can be a signaling effect and use that to um, get into a great accelerator, which then can use, you can use that to raise money or use that to raise your first couple hundred thousand in funding um, and so forth. And, and it's always about being scrappy too, right? It's always about hustling. Um, and what I mean by that is, is that, you know, you can, you see founders all the time that have 500 or $1,000 a month in revenue who raise half a million dollars. And then you have other founders over there that are doing $25,000 a month in revenue and can't even raise $100,000. Um, and it generally oftentimes comes to storytelling, um, hustling, um, and, you know, how you're, you're positioning your company for growth and so forth. So it's really a loaded question in terms of it's very nuanced based on the individual. Um, but you know, if you can raise it without traction, of course do that. Um, if you can't raise it without traction, get something. And then I think the last thing I'll say about that is, is you'll know very early on in the fundraising process, if you are going to be able to close uh, a, a deal or not, especially if you're raising from individual angels, because they make quick decisions. If you're raising a 10 and $25,000 check, they can let you know an answer in uh, a day to a week. And so, you know, if you're not able to close a couple of those checks after the first couple of weeks, that's a pretty good signal that you're probably gonna have a tough time fundraising. You need to go back right. to the drawing board, build more traction before you go back out and fundraise. Right, so if, you know, a founder's beating their head against the wall, uh, they haven't been able to raise, you know, a few angel potentially checks, but they haven't built out that traction yet, maybe it's time for them to kind of try to see if they can bootstrap a way to getting that first traction, getting that first right. revenue, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because a lot of investors um, will say even they try not to invest in companies that essentially don't have any sort of market validation yet, even if that's just one customer or a few thousand in revenue. Although I think there is exceptions for founders that are really well known or have had previous yeah. exits as well. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. That's when, when, if you've had a successful exit, all the rules go out the window, right? Mm -hmm. Because you've been there, you've done that, it's clear you know what you're doing, but tech mm -hmm. is hard. It's hard to go from concept to exit. And so, mm -hmm. you know, if you haven't done that, like most founders haven't, you, you, mm -hmm. have, to, you have to have traction. Otherwise investors are just going to say, I'm sorry, you know, I just don't believe until I see it. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think, you know, maybe we can touch on a little later as well, just the fundraising process and, and maybe some of the, you know, some of the challenges there, things you learned. But I think, you know, before that, even one thing that's probably, more important for a startup is like having the right people on board, having kind of the right team around you. And I'm curious, I mean, what, what's like your process been for team building when you've had to kind of get that, those first supporters on your project? Yeah, this is actually the most important thing because uh, without that, you're not going to be able to raise money. Even I would say, even if you've had a successful exit, um, of course, having a successful exit also makes it easier for recruiting the team because Look, everybody has opportunities. Just that's the reality of the situation. Investors have opportunities to invest in other startups, engineers, um, you know, if you're a non-technical founder looking for a technical co-founder, engineers have opportunities all over the place. You know, marketing, good marketing people have opportunities all over, the, all over the place and so forth. And so if you can't sell uh, others on your vision, 
clearly, mm -hmm. succinctly, and persuasively, you're not going to be able to recruit a team. And so you have to, once you have formed that thesis of which market you're going after and how you're going to tackle it with the product and what your goals are and all that good stuff, um, without that, just don't even bother trying to recruit a team because they're going to ask those questions. If you can't answer them, it's just a waste of time. Let's assume you've gotten to that point where you form your thesis, you've got your, you know, your, your market you're going after, you, you have a, a semblance of how you want to build the product, you know, what your goals are in the first 6, 12, 18, 24 months. Now, of course, it's time to go out and get a team. How does that look? Well, you know, being in Silicon Valley, it's, I think it's light years easier than if you're in other markets because I think a lot of these uh, relationships are formed in person, um, whether it be meetup events or other conferences. Now, obviously, in the post-COVID world, we'll see how that goes. Um, but hopefully some of these events continue to be um, streamed virtually and whatnot. Um, and right. And there's a lot of various happy hours and meetups in Palo Alto that you can go to potentially meet yeah. up under there. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping we get back to some semblance of normalcy uh, in, mm -hmm. with regards to that. Because I actually think for forming new companies, that's critical. Uh, mm -hmm. I just don't think you can do that virtually in the same way. Like I've, I've, I've tried kind of everything, you know, in the past, like, you know, go on like co-founders lab or other, you know, kind of, uh, stuff like that. It's just, it's just not the same. You got to get out there and find those people in person and persuade them in person. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, you know, have a, have a hour, two hour long conversation over a beer, uh, or whatever, mm -hmm. because ultimately you're getting into a marriage and you right. want to make sure that other person has the same goals that you do. And so without that face-to-face -face interaction, it's tough. But once you do have that face-to-face -face interaction, um, then at that point, it's really about selling them on your vision. And if you can sell them on your vision appropriately uh, and in the right way, that makes them realize you know, what's in it for them and what they stand to gain by working with you, the amazing uh, founder, uh, entrepreneur, uh, it, it becomes much easier to recruit you. In fact, you may actually have inbound requests <laughs> to, to join you as co-founders. You may um, you know, have multiple people that you can take a look at. So um, it's really about getting that point where you can uh, sell that vision and tell that story to persuade and convince others to join you. Right. Yeah. Telling that story. I mean, that theme's coming up again. I mean, it's not just for the fundraising, it's for getting the first people on your team. Um, what have you kind of learned maybe on, on how to craft the best story in terms of what you're doing with your startup and why it's going to be the next, you know, big company here? Yeah, I think having a very clear outline of what the plan is and being hyper organized, it instills confidence. And that goes true for fundraising as well. I can't tell you how many investors have invested in, in me and the company um, just because I was, I had my shit together, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that makes, that speaks volumes for how you approach things in life in general and how you will approach running the company. And it instills confidence, right? The last thing somebody wants is to join, you, you know, you tell a, a, a grandiose story, you tell a, a great vision, and then, you know, it's your first day working together and you don't have a plan for what to do next. Um, and you don't have a clear outline and you don't have like a set of, I don't know, mock-ups for how the product's going to look and a set of initial beta customers to test things out and uh, a set of initial like, um, you know, advertising, you know, branding, marketing things to do. And having that all in place and, and using tools like Asana for task management, Slack, of course, for chatting, um, you know, uh, documents, you know, Google Drive and, and, and Word documents and Excel spreadsheets for how everything's going to look. Mm -hmm. Those things instill confidence. I mean, people go, okay, I, 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 you know, maybe, maybe I don't actually fully agree with you on everything, but 
but mm -hmm. you've convinced me enough where I believe you will get me to the promised land. Because that really is ultimately the end goal is I may not buy into everything, but I believe you'll get me there. And I think a really good example is when we pivoted to sports betting from Zen Sports, just to throw this anecdote out there. I mean, I, 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 I turned to my co-founder, I'll never forget this, in May of 2018, two years ago. And I just said, I said, this rec sports thing isn't working. And I said, look, we have to go after a bigger market, all the things I just talked about. We should pivot to sports betting using cryptocurrencies. And I know he just gave me a funny look, like, what the heck are you doing, man? Like, uh, are you nuts? But I had proven myself enough to that point, and I always had a clear plan in place for what we were doing, that he, you know, I, I think basically more or less said, look, I don't know if I totally agree with you, but I trust you'll get us there. And, you know, being able to tell that kind of story when you're first recruiting a team, or if you need to make a big decision in the middle of a company like a pivot, um, those are the kinds of key things that go through people's heads. If I, if right. I agree with you, great, okay, cool, well, that's easy. But if I don't fully agree with you, do I still trust you that you'll get us there? Because people will still join you if that's the case. They'll still want to be part of your journey and the journey together if they believe that you are the person that will make it happen, even if they don't fully agree with your thesis. Um, right. Taking the first step without seeing the full staircase. I mean, it's pivoting. It's going to happen in a lot of different startups, and it's often part of the process. But if you've shown that you can build out processes to get to your goals before, even if you've had to you know, switch your uh, – vision a little bit they still trust that you're going to be able to build that process again and bring them to where you need to go yeah exactly well i'm curious i mean for those founders who are maybe in that position they have their story ready they're looking to recruit people onto their team uh maybe just pragmatically have you seen what you think are some of the most important characteristics for when you're recruiting people into your startup so you know, there's been a lot of research around this. I remember uh, we recently went through uh, Jason Kalkanis' launch accelerator, which is a great accelerator, by the way. Highly recommend. Jason is okay. a, obviously a prolific angel investor, one of the top angel mm -hmm. investors in the world, and mm -hmm. great accelerator. So uh, shameless plug for them. But uh, they had as one of our final um, uh, cohort days together, uh, or class days together, that uh, they had, uh, I forgot which VC it was, she came in and she presented this really in-depth research about what makes a successful co-founder and what gets people to convince others to join them and so forth. And going back to that word storytelling. Uh, so that was actually, I believe it was number one, it was number one or number two um, in terms of being able to tell that vision and tell that story. So it just, it, it takes practice, right? You got you to practice it. I mean, you know, go into your living room, go into your bedroom and just say it five, 10 times, go in front of your friends, say it five, 10 times, you know, keep mm -hmm. practicing just like you would any other investor pitch or anything else, like really get it down and, and understand what sounds good and what doesn't. So that's one. Mm -hmm. The second thing is, is uh, just flat out across the board is resiliency. So um, mm -hmm. there are so many times, I mean, I can't tell you how many times along the Zen Sports journey or my last startup journey where we could easily form the towel, give it up, and that would have just been it. Uh, mm -hmm. easily, easily. In fact, I'd say almost once every two or three months for the last <laughs> few years. Yeah. And mm -hmm. you've got to have that type of personality that says, okay, no big deal. We're going to get through this. We'll be fine. In fact, you almost want to be to the point where you almost welcome those challenges where you're like, okay, you bring it on. All right. This is a problem. Okay, fine. No problem. I, I can handle this. And versus the kind of personality that just kind of crawls in a roll and says, I give up. I mean, yes, there are times where it is the correct decision to maybe throw in the towel and move on to something else. I'm not saying there's not, but uh, Paul Graham said it best uh, in one of his blog posts many years ago is that 
startups don't die because they run out of money. Startups die because founders give up. And that's just, that is so true, 100% true, 1000% true. Um, most important thing as a founder is to be resilient. Um, if you're resilient and you stick with it, it's, it's really, really, really hard to die unless you're going in a, a bad market in a bad direction for other reasons. It's really hard to die and, and, and to fail if you, if you don't give up. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, and sometimes it's like, maybe it's possible to even just think it's time to throw in the towel, but by sticking in that situation, you're really actually close to that next milestone that you wanted to hit without realizing it. Yeah. And kind of I mean, sticking in there could, you know, get you to that next step. And that's yeah, what I mean, you need to like, keep Like going. when we need to pivot, right? I mean, peer-to-peer it, it, -peer was right. That part was right. And sports was right. We just were going after the wrong segment within sports. I mean, we should be going after sports betting, which we moved to, not rec sports. And so exactly, like you may be so damn close, you don't even know it. Um, and you know, sometimes, so many times founders give up right before then and that's a shame. Mm -hmm. Got it. Um, and I think, you know, one thing that we already touched on about is just getting that first traction going. Uh, and ultimately that's something that's going to be measured on, like in the subsequent <laughs> steps of whether you're raising funding or you're looking at, you know, how things are going. What do you think about that first process of, or those first few steps of like, gaining growth and traction and, and selling? I mean, what's maybe like, what have you learned from those, uh, from having to do that with your last startups? Yeah, so it completely depends what kind of product you have. If it's mm -hmm. a, you know, business B2B or if it's a B2C product. And then of course, mm -hmm. within that, um, it's further nuance. Are you selling the, if it's B2B? Are you selling the small businesses, medium businesses, mm -hmm. enterprise companies? Mm -hmm. If it's consumer, is it a, um, you know, is it a retail uh, consumer business? Is it uh, still a software as a service business, like Dropbox type of thing. Is it a freemium model? Is it a, you know, uh, is it a large upfront cost and then free later on? I mean, there's all sorts of, or is it just a, is it an ad driven model where, you know, where you're just, you know, it's completely free to use all the time and you sell ads later on. So it really depends on that. Let, let me touch on a couple that I've uh, experienced. So on the B2B side, so like traditional SaaS B2B software, um, if you're selling to, small businesses like we were for my last company where we were selling to small real estate brokerages. It's, it's mostly a marketing play um, where you're just trying to get the brand and awareness out there. But it's also about making the science experience like super drop and simple, like get people in and using the product for free, give them a free trial. If they're small businesses, let them try the damn thing for free. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, small businesses always have a cash flow issue and they really mm -hmm. hate pulling out their credit card unless they have to. So, make it free for seven, 14 days. And then uh, hopefully the product is good enough and they'll, you know, you'll convert at a high clip uh, when it's mm -hmm. time to uh, actually pay. Then if you're selling to medium and large size companies, that's mostly on the opposite side, not a marketing effort, but a sales effort, whether it's inbound, mm -hmm. or excuse me, whether it's uh, inside sales or outside sales. And it uh, depends on the product and other factors. Uh, but then you got to just expect that it's going to be a longer sales cycle. Um, mm -hmm. if the, the sales part is just as important as the product itself oftentimes. In fact, many times the best product does not win in those, mm -hmm. in those situations. It's who sells them the best. And uh, Jason Lemkin, the founder of Sapster, says this best is make this sales process as easy as it is to use your product. So many times like there's great products, but the, the companies make the sales process so challenging and so difficult and so cumbersome and they don't make it just easy. Make it easy for me to give you my money. 
And so many companies forget that. It's like, I got to jump through all these hoops. I got to print something out and fax it back or email back. Like, God, for gosh sakes, use e-signatures, you know, send them a document. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all those kinds of things that just make the process easy. Um, and then on the consumer side, uh, if, you're, if you're, you know, trying to go after consumers, you, you got to, well, of course, just like anything else, make the process to, to sign up and use it easy, but also make it easy for people to tell others about it. Uh, because that's where word of mouth really, that's the type of product where word of mouth really matters. Yeah. Um, you you just build that network effect of, you know, everybody telling their friends right. and trying it out themselves. Maybe you have a little gamification involved there. Um, I mean, we've seen all sorts of different consumer plays that have been really successful, like Uber and Lyft referrals. I mean, for example, I think that's how most people got started with those. Um, yeah. I mean, referral host. bonuses, right? Referral yeah. bonuses, referral codes, um, easy mm -hmm. social sharing, you know, use mm -hmm. deep links. If you've got a mobile product where you can refer others and have them open up an app easily, mm -hmm. just all those kinds of things. Like that's, that's really important if you're doing a consumer business. Yeah. I mean, there's basically yeah, those two sides. I mean, with enterprises, um, from my experience being involved with enterprise sales at Braze, I remember there's was sales executives who had been in the startup industry, a variety of different tech companies, and they hadn't always been on the product side, but they knew that sometimes the company with the well-oiled sales machine still wins, even if the product isn't necessarily as good as, um, you know, with the other company. Yeah. And storytelling definitely plays a big part in that as well. Yeah, storytelling is good. So, you, know, self, you know, identifying a true need in that company, a true pain point, um, and, make, and then making that process really easy for them to buy and give you their money. Just mm -hmm. super, like, very, very important. Mm-hmm. Right. And then having that good product always helps as well. I think, you know, ultimately what I've seen is like, sometimes the good, the product is good enough as well to generate that buzz. And then people end up referring other companies as well. Yeah, exactly. Well, and you can look at, um, you know, I don't know, stuff like Slack, right. Even before pre COVID, uh, right. you know, just how they, it was just such a great product. It was so, it was 10 X better than what else was out there. Right. And it was super easy to refer others and bring them in and have that, you know, easy viral component. And if you can do that in a B2B product, well, then you're really, then you're really in great shape. Um, but yeah, making that easy and the product slip as well is also super important. Right. But I think it's really interesting the way, you know, on the consumer side, how companies can scale really quickly due to networking effects. And it's something that some people also call growth hacking. I was wondering if maybe you, had any sort of tips for those who want to scale on the consumer side? I mean, anything you've learned from growth hacking yourself? Yes. Uh, so obviously we are a consumer product with Zensforce and I never built a consumer product prior to this. So I had no idea why well, I, I had, you know, ideas, but I, I, I had not, never implemented anything mm -hmm. uh, for growth hacking on the consumer side prior to Zensports. So we touched on a couple of them. Uh, so referral bonus codes are a great way uh, to, uh, to, to growth hack. And what's great about referral bonus codes is you only pay for actually new customers, right? And new customers that spend money. So for example, um, like we have a referral bonus code program with uh, Zen Sports where if, if uh, I share my referral bonus code with you and you redeem it, I get 1% of your betting volume and then you get five times the sign-on bonus that you get, uh, sign-on bonus that you get if you didn't use the code. So we're both incentivized to use it. And I basically can make a side income out of just referring other people to Zensports. I basically become mm -hmm. an extension of your marketing uh, marketing division. Wow. So that's a, that's a, I think referral codes for any consumer product, great. 
I briefly touched on deep links, what deep links are. So for example, there's a company called branch.io um, that does deep links and basically what deep links are, and this is mostly specific to mobile products, um, but can also be used for, for web products is um, you can like within a, within a mobile app, you can create a deep link that takes people right to a specific screen to then buy. And so what that means is, is I can, for example, in Zen Sports, I can share out a bet that I've created to Facebook, to Twitter, to Snapchat, to whatever other social media proper. I can text it to my friends and they click on that link. They get taken right to that screen to accept the bet. They don't have to go through a bunch of clumsy mm -hmm. steps to find it or anything like that. And if they don't yet have the app, it first prompts them to download the app. So it covers both use cases. And so that's a really good example of like a viral component where I'm going to naturally want to do that as part of a, as a user experience anyways, is share out my bets. And simultaneously, I'm sharing the app with people that may not have it um, and, uh, and and spreading it like wildfire. And mm -hmm. so, you know, the other thing you can do is like if your product has the ability to like invite friends in as invitations, mm -hmm. so similar to Slack or Dropbox, um, you know, for sharing. So all those things are really kind of the things that you want to build into a consumer product mm -hmm. that doesn't cost any money or very, very little money and is a great way to, um, you know, bring in a lot of customers cheaply. Yeah. That referral bonus sounds like definitely, or, or kind of that, um, that betting play that you just mentioned with Zen sports sounds like a great opportunity just because you get taken directly to the screen. So it's really easy to, you know, accept and get involved or you download the mobile app, but, I think especially with something like sports betting where it's so often just between a group of friends, adding that can just definitely help scale like the amount of people that are going to be doing these sort of friendly competitions. Exactly. Yeah. It's, 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 yeah, for us, it's, it's, those are like the top two. There's all sorts of other stuff too. I mean, you can do all sorts of other cool, like, like social media things. Like, you know, we do like funny memes each day. Um, that have nothing to do with sports betting necessarily at all, but just bring people mm -hmm. to our brand um, and gets people talking about us and stuff like that. Um, so, I mean, there's all sorts of other like cool things you can do. You can do podcasts, you know, mm -hmm. like we're doing now. I mean, just, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you make it look like you're, and not make it look like, that's, that sounds bad, but if you actually put the customers and the audience's best interest ahead of yours, mm -hmm. you will absolutely get them to engage with you and then from there, then you can sell them on whatever you've got. If they're coming to you because they love your um, memes, or if they're coming to you because they're they like your sports betting tips that you're providing each day, well, then you go, oh, and hey, by the way, uh, you can create and accept sports bets with us as well too. Then you've got their attention, and more likely to listen. No, you're right. I mean, it's like I, you know, had to take a, a Microsoft Excel modeling course in order to brush up on my finances as I was sort of getting involved in venture. But essentially, it was like I had read so many articles from these guys, mergers and inquisitions. And I thought, you know, they're so helpful in terms of learning about finance. I found myself taking the Microsoft Excel course uh, from that company. And I just realized that, you know, oftentimes handing out that free content, getting people to know, you know, what you're working on, getting to know your company, you're going to be the first one they go to when they're exactly that purchase. Like we launched uh, eSports betting, uh, as I mentioned last month, because the other sports leagues were postponed. And, we're, and, and a lot of people don't know much about eSports. They don't, they don't even know much about eSports, let alone being willing to risk their money on it uh, from a betting perspective. And so we are churning out a lot of eSports uh, e-content learning. Like, what is League of Legends? What is Counter-Strike Go? How do these leagues even work? Like, what is the, um, what is the purpose of it? You know, how do, the, how do the matches work? How do maps work? All that kind of stuff. And just educating people on that stuff 
they, they appreciate that. They, they learn something and then they go, okay, I'm, I can see myself betting on this. And they go ahead and, you know, place a bet. So just like you said, with the, with the free classes, I mean, that's, that's exactly right. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, and especially with esports, I mean, that's such a big thing internationally too. So you're getting that whole perspective of being able to scale, you know, outside of just the U S Right. Um, I think, you know, one thing that we touched upon earlier, but I wanted to mention again and ask, ask your thoughts. So in terms of fundraising, I mean, I've, I've read from, you know, some founders that it can seem like a dance of a thousand veils. Like you seem to always be having to have multiple investors on the hook, you know, VCs want to think that, you know, they're totally cool headed and just investing in a company based on, the metrics that they're seeing, but oftentimes there's a lot more involved with like the pitch process and closing those. And as somebody who's fundraised, I was wondering, you know, what are some of the interesting things you've seen in that process and maybe any suggestions for the founders going through it? Uh, well, a few things. One of course, we've already touched on the storytelling piece. Mm -hmm. You got to tell a good story for sure with, with investors. If you can't, they're not going to give you money. So it's just that mm -hmm. simple. Uh, that kind of goes back to what I said before, where I've seen some founders that have, uh, <laughs> $500 a month in revenue or even no revenue can go out and raise money. Um, and other founders that have significant traction are not able to, and that's because one can tell a good story and the other can't. So I'd say that's the first most important thing. The second thing is, and this always gets lost on people. Um, I'm not really sure why, because I think it's very obvious is fundraising is a numbers game. I mean, it, the reality is, is that 99% of investors are just not going to be a fit for you and are not going to be interested in what you're doing. And uh, it's just, that's just life. That's just reality. And so you can't, you know, A, take it personally or B, let it get to you. You literally need a freaking, you know, uh, master spreadsheet or CRM tool of, you know, potentially dozens or hundreds of investors that you are going to interact with um, that you're going to ultimately meet with the close. I remember doing this exercise for my last startup uh, for, uh, you know, when we closed our $1.1 million seed round several years ago. And I literally had 144 investors that I did phone calls with. Um, uh, uh, a fourth of them led to second meetings and then a third of those invested. So basically like 12 investors. So one out of 12 investors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly right. Like that means, that means 8.25% are going to say yes. The rest are going to say no. Yeah. And you know, you've got to get comfortable with those ratios and that means you've got to make that denominator as big as possible, assuming it's a reasonable fit. You don't want to be going after folks that are totally a bad fit that are going to waste your time. But right. I mean, make that denominator as big as humanly possible um, so that you have a chance to close investors. And then if you can't close, say one out of every 10, uh, let's just use that as a rounding number. If you can't close one out of every 10 investors that you speak to, then you're either doing something wrong, your idea is not fundable, or your product and company are not fundable, um, or, um, or you just, you know, you're not, you're not good at fundraising and you need to work on that scale. Right. Yeah, definitely. I think it, it is partly a numbers game for sure. Going out making sure you're reaching out to enough investors, um, doing some research if you can to see if they, you know, line up at least with the stage, uh, with the amount of money that you're looking for and maybe if they've invested in similar companies. Um, I think from that side, have you also seen like, how important it is to have the right investors on your table there when you actually go and, and oh, pursue yeah. the company. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, uh, taking on investors is a marriage with no divorce. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you need to make damn sure, uh, that they are the right investors because once they're on your cap table or once they've signed a safe or convertible note, you can't, you can't get them out. It's just, there's, mm -hmm. it's, it's borderline impossible. 
Um, so you're you're more likely to you know get hit by lightning or win the lottery than than you are to get uh, an investor off the cap table that's uh, that you don't want. So that being said, yes, um, I, I would also say though it depends on the check size, right? So if you take a ten thousand dollar check from somebody that you might think borderline could be a problem later on, that's less of an issue than if you take a million dollar or five million dollar check from somebody who's also getting a board seat and uh, you know has enough shares to make your life difficult if it comes to that. So there are some exceptions to that. I still don't want to take a $10,000 investor if they're going to be a pain because they could suck up my time and, you know, be a, a thorn in my side and stuff like that. But in terms of like legal rights and ramifications, they're, the bigger the check size, the more you have to look out for that. The smaller the check size, the less it's an issue. Exactly. Are they going to sit on your board or how much voting rights are they going to have, you know, having to look out for those things? Exactly. Yeah. And the other part of that too is, you know, not so much in the angel seed round, but later on as you raise more money, you know, will they be supportive when things get difficult? Mm -hmm. Will they be able to write follow on checks? Will they be able to introduce you to other investors? Stuff mm -hmm. like that. I, th those I put in the nice to have bucket. Um, mm -hmm. If somebody can't do those things, I don't, I don't say no, you can't invest. Um, those aren't deal breakers, but those are nice to have. That's when you go, oh, wow, this investor's great. I'm willing to let him get in for more money. Or, um, you know, I, I'll let him lead the round and set the terms, mm -hmm. stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas if uh, they can't do those things, it's not a deal breaker, but they get kind of less perks, if you will. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, got it. And I think, you know, one thing I wanted to ask about, because I feel you'll, you're going to have a unique perspective on this, is not all founders have gone through the process, but maybe you could talk a bit about what that acquisition process was like uh, with your previous company. I mean, when did you decide that this is something that you're going to go through? Yeah. Uh, so first things first, um, you should start forming those relationships with potential acquirers early. Uh, wow. Those kinds of deals don't happen overnight. They take time and, and relationships to establish unless there's very unique circumstances. Like you build uh, TikTok and it's all of a sudden eaten into 10% of Facebook's business and now they're going, oh shoot, we need to do something. Those mm -hmm. you may not need to have any prior relationship for, but let's just assume you're not that in that situation. Um, you need a prior relationship. And what that means is, is from the second you start launching your company and launching a product and getting customers and, and you're you know, going to market, that's when you should start forming relationships. You know, make a list, just make a list of uh, 50 to hundred potential acquirers in your space and don't reach out to them and say, Hey, I want to, re I want to form a relationship with you as a potential future acquisition target that just comes across desperate. Mm -hmm. But you start building relationships. They can be a customer of yours. They can be a partner mm -hmm. of yours. What we did with uh, Resio, my last startup, is we threw uh, two big uh, real estate technology conferences and wow. invited all the top players to be a part of it and speak and engage with our customers, which gave them mm -hmm. free marketing. And it made us look like a thought leader in the industry. So here's this little four person startup that um, you know isn't big by any means, and you know has modest, decent revenue, but not like earth shattering or anything like that. And I mean, basically, and I'll get to this in a minute, but you know we had plenty of acquisition interest uh, on multiple different occasions, mm -hmm. just because of just doing those kinds of things. So anyway, so establish those relationships, and then um, you know they will let you know when they're ready. So the old adage is companies are bought, they're not mm -hmm. sold. Um, you can't really pitch that you're selling your company that doesn't work. Um, unless you have a term sheet or a letter of intent uh, from mm -hmm. another acquirer to be bought, then you can go shop the deal to others um, mm -hmm. because then it's kind of the last moment for them to, to do that if they want. Right. Um, but if, you know, if you're kind of hoping to be acquired, you can't really sell the company per se. Mm -hmm. um, 
So the, the interest will come from that acquirer and generally it'll happen anywhere from six months to uh, six years after you initially established that relationship. Um, and then from there, yeah. it looks, you know, the conversation looks like this is basically, they'll say, hey, we're interested in acquiring you. Um, mm -hmm. If that's interesting to you, um, let's start diving, getting to know each other more, even deeper than we do. Let's start diving into each other's businesses, especially mm -hmm. them diving into yours. And, um, and then if that goes well for two or three months, then they will generally put together a letter of intent uh, to, to buy you. And that's basically like a term sheet or a formal offer letter. Um, and then at that point, you can go shop the deal to others because, again, you know, if, uh, uh, if others don't move forward, well, right. you, know, if you already have one in them. And if they do want to move forward, then you can get multiple offers and then uh, drive up the price. Right. Um, and then once you sign that letter of intent, it's basically, generally speaking, a 60-day close. Uh, mm -hmm. 30 days of due diligence on the part of the acquiring company into your business, mm -hmm. and then another 30 days of the legal back and forth on the purchase agreement. Mm -hmm. um, and then the deal closes and uh, you go start working there. Um, so that's basically at a high level what it looks like. And of course, there's mm -hmm. a lot of other nuances in between that. Right. When you get that first initial interest, um, that initial letter of intent, it's usually a non-binding, it's not, it's a non-binding essentially contract. Uh, no, it's usually, but there's, well, there's, oh, there's, there's, there's poison pills put in place. So okay. there'll be a, there'll be like a breakup clause. Like if, okay. if, well, it depends on who has the leverage. Okay. So, um, if let's assume both companies have equal leverage uh, in the situation where both don't have to do the deal, but they want to do the deal, then, um, there'll be a breakup clause. If either side breaks it up for, you know, without cause, mm -hmm. you know, there's a penalty associated, you know, pretty sizable penalty that encourages both sides to see the deal through. If one side has more leverage than the other, you might be able to get one side to have a breakup clause and the other side not to, um, that can happen as well. But there's usually, uh, I mean, I don't, it's tough to put a number on it, but somewhere around 10% of the deal price, um, five to 10% of the deal price as a breakup clause usually is, you know, I don't say standard, but it's, 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 Okay. So with that letter of intent, there's, you know, that's not as much space then left to shop the deal, but more like before that occurs. Well, you can know you shop the deal, you shop the deal when you get the letter of intent, but before you sign it, once you sign Got it, it yeah. that's the part that binds it from a, um, that binds it from a breakup clause perspective. Right. But generally mm -hmm. you have a week or two to go shop the deal because mm -hmm. your shareholders will demand it. In fact, if you don't go shop the deal, I mean, theoretically your, your shareholders could sue you for not, um, uh, trying to get the best deal possible. Yeah, not acting in their is. best interests. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's actually in the acquirer's best interest that you shop the deal as well, because then that keeps all shareholders okay. happy. Also. And then you know, after that acquisition process, when you realize that you had essentially fulfilled that whole uh, purchase agreement, you know, gone through that due diligence, and the process was over, how did you essentially feel about you know what you had just accomplished with with your previous startup? That's a really great question, actually. I'd say the first couple of days I had this like postpartum depression where I'm like, my baby's gone. Like, uh, <laughs> even though I was still working on it, I was working on it as part of the other company. Um, and that actually is a really good point. Jason Lepkin talks about this too, is that once you sell, it's no longer yours. It just isn't. Mm -hmm. I don't care what anybody says, it's not yours. Even if you're the mm -hmm. GM of that business, even if you're all that's, that's all you're working on at the new acquirer, it's still not yours anymore. It's theirs. Mm -hmm. That's what they're paying you for. Um, but once that goes away, then you, you know, you're like, oh, okay, well, it's good to get this money and it's great that we had a nice outcome and this was best for everybody involved. Um, mm -hmm. So I think once an initial kind of shock wears off, um, mm -hmm. then you, you generally recognize you made the right uh, decision mm -hmm. um, you know, in doing that. But yeah, there's that kind of initial like, 
oh no, you know, because it's mm-hmm. something you've worked on and is yours and now it's no longer technically yours. Right. Something that you've dedicated years uh, of work into. Yeah. So it makes sense. But I think, you know, when you look back, it's not nearly every startup gets that far. So uh, definitely a good time to reflect as well. Yeah, and exactly. for those serial entrepreneurs like yourself, it's like, then you realize if there's a new industry that you want to get into and you want to step up to bat again in the startup game. Yeah. And I think you really think about those things as you're going through the acquisition talks is, mm-hmm. you know, you think about like, okay, how long will I work at the acquiring company for? Um, mm-hmm. Like, what do I want in my life in general? Forget just, you know, the, the company itself for a second, but you know, maybe at that point you want more work-life balance. I mean, I'm a workaholic, so I don't care about that. <laughs> but uh, maybe for whatever reason you want more work-life balance and, and by being acquired, you'll have that. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe, um, you know, you just don't want to deal with all the other things that come with running a business, like all the administrative and legal mm-hmm. and whatnot. You just want to focus on the product and focus on the customers. And that's a good reason too. Um, and of course the money never hurts. Got it. Um, well, I think, you know, Mark, we've talked about most of the, the main things I wanted to, you know, ask you about in terms of startups and, you know, your fundraising, how you've scaled, you know, is there any other points that you wanted to mention or bring up that any, any good takeaways that you want to add? I think the only thing is, it's just in the times that we're in right now, um, mm-hmm. you know, with COVID, right. uh, I still think like everyone should uh, still be excited to be an entrepreneur. Like this shouldn't be a discouraging moment for folks. Maybe if you're starting a, a brand new restaurant or bar, that might not be the best thing to go into right now. But strictly talking on the technology side of things, like I still think now is as great a time as ever uh, to start a new company. And, and uh, you know, and to find founders and to build product and to fundraise, mm-hmm. um, all those things are still good uh, and, and, and possible out there. So don't let the current times discourage you. Um, uh, you know, you have to work through some nuances, but in general, like it's still a great time to be an entrepreneur. And, um, you know, I highly still recommend people if they're ready to start something now, you should go do it. Mm-hmm. Right. And from the last recession, there was a lot of great companies that yeah. started, you know, during that difficult time. Maybe some people who have, have been freed up from the previous job are thinking about taking advantage of the opportunity to do the startup that they didn't have a chance to do before. So I think, you know, we're going to see as, as this clears up a lot of really interesting new companies emerging and those companies that, you know, get through the process, there's going to be, you know, light at the end of the tunnel with the next wave of growth that's going to come. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Like you, you hit the nail right in the head, like Uber and Airbnb came out of the last recession. Um, and, uh, exactly like you, you'll, there'll be a little bit less competition for talent. Um, mm-hmm. the better companies will have survived generally speaking. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I, I still think it's a great time to start a business. Got it. And I guess, you know, one last question I wanted to ask from you. Um, it's clear you're, you're a very hard worker and, you know, I, I love to see what you did with coffee for closers um, you know, in order to get yourself continuously motivated until you fulfilled that round. Uh, what do you think are like some of the main, you know, keys to your own success, like on a personal or a habit level? Um, I know this may sound weird, but um, I've heard other people say the same thing. So maybe it's not that weird. I am oddly enough motivated oftentimes by a fear of failure. I have this innate uh, fear of letting people down, whether it be our team members, our investors, our customers, and that motivates me to no end. Uh, a really good example is when I raised the friends and family around for Zen Sports uh, pre-product. I didn't have to do that. I had, you know, I had some money. I could have just said, forget it. I actually wanted that pressure of other people coming in and putting money in. 
and having that fear of not letting them down and losing their money. And so that actually for me drives me like when all, when, when, when it's, when it's really easy to potentially throw in the towel, mm-hmm. that fear of not letting everyone else down just puts me into that next gear mm-hmm. uh, to ensure that we make it happen. And so everyone is motivated by different things. But for me, that is a biggie that keeps driving me, especially when things are rough. I don't want, it's okay for me to lose what I have, but I don't want that other person to lose what they have. And so that really motivates me and drives me. And, and I guess at the end of the day, I'd say whatever works for you to give you that motivation, but that's personally one of the you know, thing that works for me. Now that reminds me of, you know, one thing that I'd heard from Mike Tyson. He would say that, you know, when he steps into the ring, he's not afraid of his opponent. But he's afraid of, you know, being on his back, knocked out and having that fear of failure. And that, Mm -hmm. you know, motivates him to keep fighting through the hardest moments. So I second that. I think that's a good point. And, you know, finally, what can somebody do in order to, you know, get started with sports betting um, if they want to go ahead and and get on Zen Sports? Uh, So we make it pretty easy. Uh, You can just go to our website at zensports.com and download either our iOS or Android mobile app. Our iOS app is also in the app store. Uh, Right now we are 100% international. We're outside Mm -hmm. in the United States. We are working on getting licensed in the US Mm -hmm. and we are hoping to be in at least two states um, by later this year. So we're working on that and we definitely expect, you know, over the next few years to be in all the states. Um, but, uh, just cause of, uh, you know, legal costs and other things regulations put that off until now. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, very excited. Um, so, mm-hmm. so yeah, we expect to be in a couple of States by later this year and we're just continuing to grow internationally. So those of your listening okay. audience that's currently outside the U S they can go to our website and download our app mm-hmm. and get started. Sounds good. So international listeners, there you go. And then U S listeners stay tuned, you know, for what's going to happen in uh, the coming exactly. months. Sounds good. Well, I think, you know, it was really great having you, Mark. Definitely learned a lot from your perspectives just on your own fundraising journey, your experiences in these last couple of startups. And I think, you know, really glad to be able to share this um, with the others. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Max. And this was great. I really enjoyed the time and uh, let's do it again. Sounds good. Thanks, Mark. All right. Talk to you later. There you have it. That's the first episode of the Startup Scaler Show. Let us know if you have any feedback. Always happy to hear from you. Thank you.